You're listening to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast, episode 58, hosted by me, Robert Plotkin. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Richard Chambers, a clinical psychologist and leading mindfulness expert. Dr. Chambers is a three-time author who's regularly featured on mainstream TV, radio, and print media in Australia. He's also an advisor behind the Smiling Mind Meditation app for children of all ages and adults. You can find out more about Dr. Richard Chambers at drrichardchambers.com. That's drrichardchambers.com. I'm extremely pleased to welcome Dr. Richard Chambers to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. In the upcoming interview you're about to hear with Dr. Richard Chambers, you'll hear him talk about how he encourages and teaches people to experiment with their use of technology, and in particular, to pay attention to both how they feel subjectively when they are using technology in different ways and not using it, and to objectively measure how they perform and act with technology. So I'm not really going to add anything new here for today's tip. I'm really just going to suggest to all of you as listeners to try doing this with yourself. Perform these kinds of experiments with your own experience with technology. Here's an example. If you find that you are often emailing and writing documents and speaking to people and watching videos or who knows what, simultaneously switching back and forth, you might try doing what uh, Richard Chambers calls unitasking. Try then, let's just pick email. Write email with all your other windows closed, not speaking to people, not engaging in any other task, and do that for 10 or 15 minutes. Pay attention mindfully to how you feel while engaging in that kind of a single task. And then go back to your other way of doing you know, multiple things at once, including email. Pay attention to how you feel. And you might want to compare those two different experiences. I'm not saying you may actually feel better while unitasking. The purpose of this is just to pay attention and notice and learn from the difference in your experience. And then now this may take a little bit more effort. See if you can measure if you're interested in productivity or maybe there's some other measure that you have. See if you can measure objectively the difference in those two different ways of doing something like engaging with email or writing something, or doing something artistic. As you'll hear in the interview, sometimes people feel subjectively that they're being really productive when they are, in fact, not. And they only learn that when they measure, let's say, how long it takes to do something. And they find that the objective facts are different from their subjective feeling. So that's my encouragement for today. Pick something simple in your technological life Maybe it's how you engage in social media. Maybe it is how you engage in telephone or other kinds of calls, online meetings. Maybe it's uh, how you engage in writing. And try, for example, unitasking versus multitasking. Pay attention to your experience in those two different modes and see if you can measure the difference and see what you learn. I hope you find that helpful, and I think you're really going to enjoy the upcoming interview with Dr. Richard Chambers. Hi, Richard, and welcome to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. It's great to be here, Robert. 
you do so much work relating to to mindfulness and focus and and distraction, including uh, in the schools. I wonder if you could just start by telling people a little bit, maybe about how you got into mindfulness, and then about you know what's the basic work that you do uh, with mindfulness. I got into mindfulness in 1999. I was studying psychology at the time. I'm a clinical psychologist now, and I was in my final year or going into my final year of my undergraduate studies. And looking back on that time, I'd been depressed. I didn't actually notice at the time, but I was just feeling really meh and not getting to all of my classes and not really learning that well and scraping through each of the first and second year. And I just decided to clean up my life and do what I guess you'd now call lifestyle medicine, you know, sleeping, trying to get eight hours of sleep a night and drinking lots of water and eating well and exercising by chance, I stumbled upon a meditation class. I mean, back in 1999, it wasn't, we hadn't coined the term mindfulness yet, really. And, and <laughs> people weren't really talking about it in, in the way that they are now. So you really had to go looking for it. And this friend of mine one night was heading along to a meditation class. Um, it turned out to be a Theravadan Buddhist meditation class. And I went with him and the teacher just started to talk about how the mind works and how we create a lot of our own stress and suffering through mental habits like worrying and obsessing and dwelling and thinking about ourselves and then taught mindfulness meditation as a way to get unstuck from that. And the moment I did that, I just started to feel better, just getting unstuck from all that rumination and worry. And so I started going to that class every week. My friend never went back, actually. He just <laughs> went the ones. I just, I, I didn't care. I just kept going every week and I just, I'd drag my friends along and they'd come for a few weeks and then they'd be like, no, man, I'm not really into this thing. And I'd, I'd be like, look, I don't care. So I just kept going and I started practicing meditation every day. And over time, I noticed that I started to just be less caught up in negative thinking, but also more focused. I really, I remember sitting in lectures and just catching my mind wandering off earlier and earlier so that I could bring it back faster. And I just started to learn better. My grades went up, ended up doing really well in that year. And so it just became a big part of my life. I, I then went, I was pretty uninspired with my psychology travels. So I went traveling mm. uh, for a couple of years after I'd finished, went backpacking through Asia and, you know, sitting a lot of meditation retreats and just sort of deepening my practice. While I was in the north of India, I just by chance, I was in a bookshop having a chai and I pulled out a book and it was turned out to be the transcript of the Mind and Life conferences. So it was neuroscientists talking to Buddhist monks. And I thought, wow, man, if this is, you know, I, I had no, it blew my mind. I had no idea people were studying that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so I came back to Melbourne and, and found a supervisor eventually who'd let me do that kind of research because it was pretty early on in the mindfulness research field. And um, I found someone who'd let me do it and kind of went from there. Oh, wow. Yeah, you must have been, I mean, not entirely alone, but that must have been somewhat lonely work at the time, melding the science with meditation. It was just fascinating. It really reignited a passion. I mean, to be honest, I hadn't gone to a lot of class in my first three years of my undergraduate degree, right? You know, and, mm-hmm. and I was pretty disengaged, but I found this spark. I thought, this is this. This is what I want to do. And so I actually hounded a, a supervisor here who was overcommitted and couldn't take me, couldn't take on any new students. But I'd heard that he gets people, you know, the, the, the top marks in the course. Because by that point, I'd realized no one was studying meditation in Australia. And I just wanted to get to the States, wanted to work with Richie Davidson right near where you are. Yeah. And so I, I, I needed to get, you know, really, really good grades. And so I hounded this guy and I had a meeting with him and I told him why I was wanting to get to America. I just really wanted to study meditation. 
And in one of those meaningful coincidences, he, he said, you know what, I've just launched a mindfulness-based cognitive therapy study for young people literally a month ago. That was the yeah. first best mindfulness study in Australia. And he said, look, I guess, wow. you, better, <laughs> you, guess you better come on board. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and, and so my passion since since I started practicing has really been to get mindfulness into the education system and increasingly business, but really my calling is mindfulness in schools and universities, and that's what I spend a lot of my time doing now. I help to make a, an app for young people called Smiling Mind, which has about 4 million downloads. It's a really it's a free app that a lot of schools now are using. I'm in a school basically every week now talking to teachers or parents or students about mindfulness. And I also work at a major university here, Monash University, where we're, we're embedding mindfulness in the core curriculum for all of our students. Yeah. So we've now got in about nine, ten. In fact, I've got a meeting with the engineering faculty right after this chat today. So that, that, that'll, be our, that'll be our 11th faculty and 19th unit if we manage to embed mindfulness in the curriculum for first-year engineering students. Tell us about, about that embedding of mindfulness into the curriculum and, and what your philosophy is about that, um, you know, how it fits into the curriculum in a holistic way. Well, we'll just, let's just start there because you're really a, uh, an innovator in, in that integration of mindfulness into schools. Yeah, well, well, there's the famous William James quote that mindfulness presenters trot out from time to time about, you know, the ability to pay attention and bring back that wandering mind being the education par excellence, you know, this, this ability to focus is so central to learning. And most students pick that up, sort of just osmote that and figure out what the teacher's talking about when, when they're saying pay attention, but some mm-hmm. don't. And of course, these days, as, uh, as, as we're going to talk about today, technology is hijacking our attention, making it harder and harder to pay attention and stay focused on what's important, you know, when we're studying or in lectures. And so there's a growing need to, in order to reduce stress, but also boost academic performance and, and you know, whole person development to teach students to focus. And so at Monash, what we're doing is we're embedding mindfulness in core curriculum, and that can look like everything from a, a one-hour lecture all the way through to a series of lectures, six weeks of tutorials and exam questions on mindfulness. And really taking people deep. And so we teach them how to meditate, obviously. But mindfulness is such a bigger picture than just meditation. It's how we live our lives in, in, in the rest of the time. Through, through experiments and exercises, we show them that multitasking is not really a thing and that unitasking is, is the best possible way of managing our attention, you know, just focusing on one thing at a time. We teach them about how the mind works and how we create stress by, you know, worrying and obsessing and judging and dwelling and teach them how to get unstuck from mental habits like that. We cultivate qualities like curiosity so that they can become genuinely interested once again in what they're learning. We teach them how to manage technology. So there's, a, there's this much bigger picture and we always contextualize it. We speak a language that each student group understands. Uh, we, we target needs, you know, specific needs that they have. And so we found that, that they engage with that really well. If we examine them on the content, like we've done with our medical students for 30 years, we, we found that, you know, a diligent student will, will, will study and learn all of the science. And in our research, about 91% of them then start to personally apply it in their lives in some way because it just makes sense. Mm, that's great. Yeah, that they go beyond just uh, acquiring some intellectual understanding and go to incorporating it as practice, which, as we know, for mindfulness is 
where the rubber meets the road and where, where you really get the, the benefits is by, by practicing it and integrating it into how you are in your life. Yeah, that's right. So it goes beyond just the, the concept of it. And it also goes beyond meditation. You know, a lot of schools now are teaching meditation, which is fantastic. I mean, that's an amazing thing to teach in the classroom. And I'm supporting schools all across the land, you know, to do that. But when you see mindfulness as this bigger picture, as you know, it's the, it starts with the meditation on the cushion, but then it's the off the cushion stuff that's just as important. You know, how are we living our lives? How are we sitting in a lecture? Are we are we sitting there with Facebook on our screen or, or with our phone next to us beeping away and distracting us? Or are we are we managing that stuff well? And are we focusing our full attention on what we're trying to learn? And that's that's really the bigger picture of what we're trying to teach, you know, with mindfulness in education. And, you know, I, I look at your, your website at the various issues that you uh, address as a psychologist, stress and anxiety, eating issues, addictive behaviors, sleep problems, academic work performance, relationship difficulties. And what strikes me about these is these are, of course, problems that transcend technology that have been around before technology became more of an issue. But yet every single one of those can be exacerbated by technology. Definitely. Sleep, addiction, eating, stress and anxiety. And particularly, I think, in school for young people, can you tell me, you know, you, you've mentioned college age, you know, what are the most common or, or maybe most pressing serious immediate issues that the students you you work with are facing as they relate to technology that you try to help them work through with mindfulness you know it's funny because i've been teaching mindfulness for nearly 18 years now and we've only had smartphones for about 11 or maybe 12 years and and i was thinking the other day what the hell did i used to talk about (laughs) because now if i'm giving a keynote somewhere or running a workshop it's a major part of what i'm talking about because it's the it's it's in some ways it's it's almost the number one problem. You know, we've got this habit of getting distracted anyway. You know, half the time we're awake, according to that Harvard research, Killingsworth right. and Gilbert research from 2010, we're not paying attention to what we're doing. I think that's a gross underestimate. I think our minds are mm-hmm. away with the fairies much more than that. And then you've got technology hijacking our attention. And so it does impact things like learning outcomes and mental health. It's a new technology and teachers and students and parents just haven't really got it figured out yet. You know, after, you know, a couple of hundred years, thousand years of of using fire as a tool, I think we've more or less got the hang of that. You know, you get a forest fire every now and then, but we've kind of worked that one out. But technology is just brand new. And so you get students, you get teachers, let's say, in a classroom thinking, oh, technology is great for learning. So let's use iPads or computers for every task. It's a great reminder because the technology, I think, can become so quickly enmeshed in our lives, it often can feel like it's been around longer than it has been. You know, so I appreciate your reminder that smartphones have only been around for 10 or 11 years. I often tell people, as much of a techie as I am, I didn't get a smartphone until the iPhone 4 was out. You know, so for me, it's been more like six or seven years, but it feels like forever. It feels like forever, doesn't it? You can you almost can't imagine being without it now. And there are generations of young people that, that literally have never experienced life before having technology, before having smartphones and the internet. And, and so it's just kind of becoming part of their DNA in a way. What do you find might be a challenge for those young people or for you working with them to address these issues in light of the fact that it's all they've ever known? 
Well, I think the main challenges really for young people are attentional problems, uh, getting exacerbated, becoming more distracted and more reactive because of technology and the way it's designed. You see executive function problems as well because we're not learning to train our attention by reading a book now. We're reading hyperlinks Mm. and we're watching YouTube clips and increasingly they're fast-paced to keep our goldfish attention actually engaged. And that's just reinforcing and exacerbating a problem with distractibility and reaction. You see, of course, social media and, you know, comparison with other people and this kind of image that everybody presents. Everyone's got a personal brand now. So you start to see things like increasing rates of narcissism and also depression. You see online bullying. So, you know, technology is a fantastic tool, but a terrible master. If we, you know, if, if we use it well, I mean, I'm sure all the listeners of your podcast would know this, you know, like very well, but, you know, if, if we use it well, it can do amazing things. I mean, to be able to find out where I am, order some food, order an Uber, to be able to look up a fact, to be able to communicate with you, you know, from the other side of the world. It's, it's amazing if we use it well, but we're still, we need to be taught really how to do that. We need to, and we need to learn for ourselves how to do that. And and it's, it's the early days of that. And so, you know, you, you often see extreme approaches. It's like technology is great for learning. So it should be in every classroom all the time mm-hmm. or the other extreme, you see the Luddite approach of let's get technology out of classrooms. It's bad. Kids shouldn't have digital devices. And somewhere in the middle of that is probably the, you know, like the middle path, mm-hmm. the smart path where it's like, well, hang on a sec. Maybe, and I'm forever telling teachers, you know, when when you're in the classroom, have a think, is technology going to add to this learning experience? Is it going to help kids learn or is it going to distract them? And sometimes you might want to have a clean desk with no technology in sight and other times you might want to take out the iPad, use it for a specific task, but then you put it away again. And I think when we teach people how to do that, that's, that's you know, a, a skillful use of technology. Yeah, I mean, it actually sounds like, itself a, a mindfulness practice right to pay for a teacher to pay attention to what will be the best use of technology beforehand and then even uh, maybe afterwards try it out and then pay attention to how well using technology actually works so as to maybe make a different decision the next time that itself is an application of, of mindfulness. Yeah, the, the main way that I teach mindfulness actually is through experiments and exercises. You know, like if someone wants to know if music is good for studying or not good for studying, I mean, there are, you know, there, there's a meta-analysis that came out earlier this year that looked at all the studies which were all over the place. You know, the studies showing sometimes, you know, you know for certain tasks, music's good, other tasks is bad, maybe if they're language processing tasks, classical music's great. Taylor Swift, not so good, you know, like, et cetera. And, and then this meta-analysis found you see about a 60% reduction in performance if students are studying with music. So, so you have that, but getting up in front of students and hitting them around the head with science is sometimes that works really well, but often it doesn't. What tends to work better is to say, okay, guys, get out a piece of work. Let's put some music on. Okay, let's do, some, do the work for 10 minutes. Right, let's just turn the music off. And let's do another 10 minutes of work. And now let's have a look at how you objectively performed on both of these tasks. And let's talk about the experience of doing a task with music and without music. Or I might get them trying to multitask. You know, let's let's have a conversation with somebody and also at the same time send some text messages or emails on your phone. 
and then let's have a talk about what that was like. Oh, you didn't feel very connected with the person you were talking to. You missed parts of what they were saying. You misheard things. Great, let's put the phone away and have that have that same conversation and notice. And then when we, we have a conversation about it and draw out the learning, it obviously it's it, it's it's very illustrative. People start to realise. I mean, I, I, I'm forever seeing young people getting their minds blown, thinking, "Wow, I really can't multitask. I just thought I could do it, but when I actually tried it, you know, under experimental conditions, I suck at it." And so, and, and that's really illustrative. I mean, some some of them turn around and say, "I don't care if my friends on their phone when I'm talking to them. I'll just get my phone out," which is a an indictment on where we're at these days. But those kinds of experiments are really important. So I think that's a very good, if there are any educators listening to your, to your podcast, I think that's a really good way to teach it rather than telling, you know, show them and, and, and help them to experience it themselves. And the other thing that's- to add to that as well is that embodiment yeah. and modeling is one of the most important things ever. Like I can't tell you, Robert, how many times I'll go into a school and I'll run some exercise with the students or even just be talking about mindfulness, teaching meditation, and then the teacher takes that opportunity to go and sit in the back of the room and get the, get the computer out and start catching up on emails and I just sort of face pump and come on, look, what are you demonstrating here, you know? And so when teachers themselves start to model those, you know, skillful behaviours around technology use, that carries a lot of weight for students. We actually ban mobile phones here in, in Victorian schools. I live in the state of Victoria in the south of Australia, and we've just banned mobile phones in public schools for students, which is huge and a very brave move, but very progressive if, if, if you know about the literature and, and, and what happens when technology is overused in classrooms. There's a, a strong case for that. France did it two years ago. They banned mobile phones in public schools for students and teachers, probably realising the the fact that this isn't just isolated to young people, these problems, and also maybe recognizing the importance of that modeling I was talking about. Yeah, that's great. I mean, your your description here is very rich in, in many ways. I, I appreciate, uh, for example, the fact that you, you know, mentioned both the objective and subjective aspects of this and how often those two are you know, not in line with each other. They may be sometimes, but you know, you gave the example of people, not just young people, I know, subjectively feeling like they are more productive when they are multitasking, when objectively, if you measure it, uh, they are not. Uh, they're not as not as productive. But how, you know, how can you know that or be convinced of it until you experience it? So I love that suggestion that you have uh, for teachers, but it's applicable to anyone else, you know, to try out yes. using technology and not using it, try using it in different ways. But I, what I love is, Pay attention to how you feel, but not only to how you feel. Do some objective measurement, look at both and, and compare them. I mean, that's really, you, you, could, you could learn a lot that way. So much. I mean, that's generally the way I teach mindfulness. I'll run an experiment to show people subjectively what's happening. We'll have a conversation about that and what that might mean. And then I'll show them some of the evidence just, just to reinforce, you know, this is what's happening. Your brain is incapable of focusing on more than one complex activity at a time. So when you think you're multitasking, what you're actually doing is attention switching. Mm -hmm. And that means that if you're giving your attention to one thing, you can't be focused on the other thing. You've got that attentional blink that happens. You lose that half second each time you switch your attention from one thing to another. And that just starts to kind of get in because it, it links into that subjective experience. And then you talk about the, the research on studying and listening to music or you talk about the research on driving and talking on the mobile phone, how you're four times more likely to crash 
even if you're on Bluetooth. You know, those mm-hmm. kinds of things just start to get in. And I think, and they can be light bulb moments for people. And, and when I follow them up, you know, from time to time, I get to go back into a school or a business and follow people up and ask them, you know, what, what did you take away from my keynote or what did you take away from my workshop? But they're, they're the kinds of things, those simple hacks, you know, that, that the people are realizing, you know, that they're walking out of there and starting to unitask and that becomes their their sort of, you know, main mode of operating or, you know, just flight moding the phone when you're trying to get something done or turning off some of those notifications or putting the, the grayscaling the screen if you're a social media addict so that it just reduces the amount of dopamine that gets released every time you jump on Facebook, helps to break the addiction. So quite often it's those simple hacks around technology that people appreciate the most. I mean, some people love the meditation as well. That's, that's something else that people embrace. But sometimes it's the really simple strategies that just make a big difference. Yeah, and I, I, when you mentioned the uh, task switching, I really love the example you gave in your TEDx talk. And maybe you could lead our, our listeners through that of the uh, alphabet and, and, and yes. numbers. And how, well, I'll just let you do it. <laughs> sure. Well, people think they can multitask, but it turns out that we can do multiple simple things at the same time. We can walk down the street and chew gum and bounce a ball and hum a tune in our head and do all of those simple tasks simultaneously pretty well. But when we're trying to do two or more complex tasks, like studying in front of the TV or you know having a conversation with someone while we're on our phone, what we start to do is attention switch. So we switch the attention backwards and forwards. And there's that attentional blink phenomenon, which the, the research is mostly around visual perception. You know, when we look, switch our gaze from one thing to another, for somewhere between 0.2 to 0.5 of a second. So up to half a second, the brain's literally offline and we're just not noticing what's happening during that moment. And, and an experiment that brings that to life really well is just to, you know, so I'll ask your listeners to just say to yourself in your head silently the alphabet, the letters A to Z as fast as you can. And now the number's 1 to 26. As fast as you can. All right, I'm done. Yep, good. <laughs> and now to switch letters and numbers, so A1, B2, C3, D4, up to Z26, as fast as you can. And so immediately you notice that, don't you? Your autopilot to D4, because I said it, and then suddenly you're in this territory of E5, F7. (laughs) And people find it slows them down, right, because that's that half second that we lose, and that is happening all the time. Every time we switch our attention from one thing to another, we're losing that half second. And so then I'll often invite people just to reflect on how many times during a typical day would you switch your attention from one thing to another? And if you were to multiply that by half a second each time, that would seriously start to add up, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and hundreds, hundreds of times. I, I would say thousands of times for a lot of people these days, you know, like if, if we're checking our phone 2,173 or whatever it is times a day, I mean, that's <laughs> right there, you know, you multiply that by half a second. And then there's other research that's found if we stop and check an email while we're, you know, if we're doing a complex task and we stop and check an email, it takes somewhere between 64 seconds and 20 minutes to get our attention fully back in the zone you know, when we bring our attention back, not including the time that we spend emailing or on our phone or Facebooking. 
So even if we take the most conservative estimate there, it takes just over a minute to get our attention back into the task, you know, rereading the paragraph or thinking about what we were doing. And if we check an email every five minutes, therefore we actually lose eight and a half hours a week. So a whole day of lost productivity. I mean, it's, it's, it's simple math. Every five minutes we lose a minute. So 20% of our time just gets burned. It's gone forever, you know, and there's a massive difference between busyness and productivity. And that's what people are confusing. They're confusing busyness with genuine productivity because we're just distracted, juggling multiple things. You know, we're forgetting things and making mistakes, but there's this sense of, oh, I'm getting so many things done with this multitasking, but we're just not. You know, when you look at it objectively, we, we're doing really badly at that. And, and when we start to unitask, we become much more productive and less stressed at the same time. And so that's why there's a rationale for, you know, for, for, for teaching this stuff in a university. Like I said, I'm working with a not-for-profit called Smiling Mind, a, a meditation app that we're trying to get into schools, you know, and, 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 and there's, a, there's a curriculum that we're, that we're working with teachers to implement in the classroom because it's the same thing. You know, this stuff belongs in the education system. It belongs in businesses as well where people are trying to be productive and at the same time stay aligned with their values and make ethical decisions. And, and of course, you know, the students are facing problems with learning and, and typical employees in all across the land are facing problems with things like productivity, but also happiness and work-life balance and acting in ethical, mature ways. I wonder if you could tell us about Smiling Mind. You know, what is it, maybe how is it different from other meditation apps or why did you see the need for, for an app? in particular, uh, to integrate with this broader curriculum? It was one of the early apps, one of the early mindfulness apps, and it was the first one, I think, that was designed specifically for young people. It's got four age modules to it. It's got seven ages, seven to 11, 11 to 13, sort of, you know, so it's like kids, tweens, mm. teenagers or young people and then adults. And particularly, you know, the, the children's module we worked with a neuroscientist who specialised in online interventions for young people and she sort of used a lot of imagination and, and, and things that engage kids. And I've heard of kids as young as three using it to meditate. Mm. It's a free app, so it's a not-for-profit. I, I didn't make it or anything. I'm just part of mm-hmm. the team. I was, I was there early on helping them to sort of develop the content and set the direction and I still work with them as, a, as an ambassador and an advisor. But basically the vision was to get meditation into schools for the reasons that we've been talking about here, but also getting it onto a smartphone because, you know, as I said before, technology is neither good nor bad. It's all about how we use it. And we'd like to sort of co-opt technology for good. You know, I guess our vision is that, you know, young people or anybody might get up in the morning and they grab their phone and they maybe check the weather and they check their schedule and probably, let's face it, check Facebook or, or Instagram, but then there's this meditation app. So they, you know, great, all right, let's do five minutes of mindfulness meditation before we start the day. And so just, just to have, of course, like any meditation app, to have guided, have guided meditations on your phone can actually be a very powerful tool. Plus, of course, it's just it's plug-and-play meditation for teachers who are wanting to bring it into the classroom but, but don't have the personal experience or the skills to actually lead a meditation themselves just a simple way of them doing that hitting play on the on the app great i mean we have a lot of listeners who are parents who are teachers who are working in education so i'm really glad you mentioned this to them and the fact that it's free and uh, something that's suitable for uh, children of all ages and adults 
I wonder if you can tell people how they can get in touch with you, find out more about the work that you do, including the work that you do in schools. You know, if, if people listening are teachers or parents, how can they find out more about things they can do practically to, to learn from your work on mindfulness? The simplest way would be to jump on my website, drrichardchambers.com. I've got all of my resources on there. I've got downloadable meditations. I've got my books. I've got my journal articles and my popular media appearances. So there's a lot of resources on there for people who are interested in mindfulness generally or mindfulness in education. I wrote a book called Mindful Learning, which obviously speaks for itself. That's about the role of mindfulness in education, but also has a lot of practical tools outlines a lot of the experiments I've talked about with you, the ways of languaging it and framing it in in, in ways that young people and students will respond well to. So that's a really good book, Mindful Learning. At Monash, we've been developing online mindfulness programs because, of course, increasingly that's that's an effective way of teaching mindfulness. We've had about 370,000 people around the world now do our online courses. And so that's, that's, they're free, they're four weeks. So that's a really accessible way of, of learning mindfulness as well. It's available via my website or via the Monash University website. You could type in Monash, M-O-N-A-S-H, mindfulness, and that would bring up our homepage. Uh, we're developing a, a much larger teacher training program. It'll be 144-hour teacher training you know, so that if any educators um, who are or ultimately business people or health practitioners as well who want to learn and then be able to teach mindfulness will be able to do it that way. But yeah, so probably the best starting point would just be my website, I think. That's great. I mean, that's just such an incredible wealth of resources that you uh, you just described. So I really encourage people to go and check out Dr. Richard Chambers at drrichardchambers.com. And of course, we'll post that all in the show notes for this episode. You're doing so much incredible work for people and it's so needed now, you know, not just for children, but for adults, all of us as things are developing so rapidly, as you said, this is all still really new. It may feel old, but, you know, I I actually find it easier to be compassionate for myself when I remember how new all of this is and how fast it's hit all of us. Uh, It's easier for me to realize that, you know, how, how difficult it's been for us to adapt uh, in this short amount of time with this flood of technology that's changed and and come our way and that we've then had to respond to, hopefully not be too reactive to. (laughs) Well, it's early days, isn't it? And and, and like you said, we are still still learning how to use this and, and, and getting a handle on it. And we've got this inbuilt addiction pathway. Every time you check your phone, you get a little hit of dopamine in the nucleus accumbens. So it's reinforcing that behavior. And so we've got this inbuilt addiction, plus, of course, the business model of Facebook and YouTube and and the technology companies are to hijack our attention and keep us watching and keep us scrolling so that they can play us more ads. That's that's how they make their money. And so that's what we're up against. So any strategy that's going to help us to, you know, to take back some control, you know, things like putting the phone out of sight or flight moding or turning off notifications, things like just using it more mindfully and being really aware of do I need this right now or is it actually getting in the way of doing what I want to do? Those things are really important. 
And sometimes, you know, a digital detox is, is, is what's called for, you know, take a, take a, a day or a week or a month away from, you know, social media or away from technology and then come back to it really slowly. Practicing mindfulness meditation, of course, makes us much more aware of what we're doing so that we can start to regulate our behaviors more effectively. You know, doing an online course, something like that, that really kind of explores different facets of mindfulness can also really help. I run retreats as well. And if any of your listeners are interested in going really deeply into some of these practices, I run retreats in Thailand. Details again are on my website. So it's, it's all about practicing this, isn't it? I mean, it's such an experiential thing, mindfulness, isn't it, Robert? You know, to, and it's, yeah. all about, it's all about practicing and applying it. And noticing when noticing those moments of unmindfulness, that's just as important. Noticing the unmindfulness. Oh, I'm on my phone again. Oh, my mind's wandered off again. And then just bringing it back without any judgment, without getting frustrated with ourselves, just coming back and paying attention to what's actually important, whether that be the conversation we're having, the meal we're eating, the breath we're taking, whatever it is. You know, it's just that it's that training, that ongoing training. And I often say to people when I'm teaching that we're always practicing something. In every moment of the day, we're always practicing mindfulness or unmindfulness. And if we're not practicing mindfulness because of the way the world's set up, because of the way the brain works, it's our default mode to be off thinking about something else, then you've got technology and you've got everybody walking around distracted and reacting to things. If we're not practicing mindfulness, we're just by default practicing unmindfulness and that's getting hardwired into our brain. We're becoming more and more distracted and reactive and it's only when we start to practice something like mindfulness, whether it's through unitasking, whether it's through informal practices like eating our meals and really tasting the food or, or paying attention when we're having a conversation with someone or the meditation practice, rewiring the brain through meditation. It's only when we practice that that we start to weaken the, the habit of being, of being distracted and reactive. And if we stop practicing mindfulness, well, guess what we revert to? You know, it's like physical exercise. You spend, you do a four-week boot camp fitness course and you feel amazing and then you go, right, good, tick. And then you go sit on the couch and watch, you know, watch TV and eat chips. Well, we know what's going to happen. And it's the same thing happening in the brain. Well, thanks so much. Thanks for, for letting people know and, and reminding people who may already know that there's such a wide variety of ways to practice mindfulness. Of course, you have mentioned meditation, but you know, I really appreciate that, that, that you've mentioned practicing it throughout your day in ways that are informal while you're using technology, while you're eating a meal, while you're speaking with a friend. I'll just tell you and the audience right now something I've learned from experimentation on the podcast is to clear my desk off. I can tell you that the one thing I have up on my screen now is uh, the little Zencaster window just to make sure our connection hasn't dropped. <laughs> but there's virtually no text on there. I've closed all the other tabs. There's nothing else uh, technology around me. I didn't always do that early on, and I learned by experimenting that I, you know, chat, it was uh, taking more effort for me to stay focused on conversations with guests and so that's not necessarily meditation, but it's a way I've tried to incorporate learning and practicing and experimenting with mindfulness. And, you know, I, I, I really appreciate that you pointed out to people maybe who haven't meditated before or who may not be interested in meditating or may not be the first thing they turn to, you know, to hear from you that there are many other ways instead of in addition to a formal meditation practice that they can actually learn and practice and expand their capacity to be mindful. It's a good reminder, isn't it? 
Yeah, yeah. And, and as you said, there's all, all of the resources that you have on your website and all the things that you're doing out in the world to help uh, bring that to people. So thanks so much, Richard. I'm sure we could keep talking uh, much longer about all of this, but thanks so much for being on the podcast. I, I really enjoyed having you here. Yeah, likewise. It's been a great chat. Thanks a lot, Robert. You're welcome. Bye now. Thanks for joining us for this Technology for Mindfulness podcast with me, Robert Plotkin, and today's guest, Dr. Richard Chambers, a clinical psychologist and leading mindfulness expert. You can find out more about Richard Chambers at drrichardchambers.com. That's drrichardchambers.com. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review, and share the episode with your friends. And don't forget to also check out our blog at technologyformindfulness.com for tips about science, technology, and mindfulness. And you can find out about our Tap Into Mindfulness course for helping you to take control of your smartphone at tapintomindfulness.com. I'm Robert Plotkin, and I'll join you next time on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast with professor of psychology and digital mental health expert, Dr. Tracy Dennis-Tawari.